you're here. Welcome to season three. Actually, this is almost the end of season three, but if this is your first time diving in, thank you. Thank you for joining me. If you've been around since the beginning, it's really good to see you. If you're new, just know that this is a safe space where I talk about pop culture that doesn't have any relevance to apps, anything. And I also throw in random stories about myself and you get the chance to hear about a weird girl who likes movies a little too much. So this season, of course, we're exploring movie musicals. It's our final list day of the season. We've gone from the 40s. Was it the 40s I think we started with? Um, 40s and 50s all the way through to now, to the 2000s. Um, and I had been splitting it up by decade, each decade getting five movies that I think deserve to be on the list of best musicals in that decade. This one was kind of hard. Um, and I just decided to lump the 2000s in together. Is that right? I don't know but it's my podcast. So that's, that's what I decided to do. And this one, this one was hard. There were so many to choose from. There were movie musicals that, um, at least the Googles considered them movie musicals, which I do not. I think that a movie musical must have spontaneous singing and dancing, but there's some like burlesque or pitch perfect once school of rock where there is music in it, and there are people that sing, but they're on a stage performing, not just breaking out into song in Central Park. And then there are some really good ones that just, there wasn't enough room on the list. Uh, Sweeney Todd, Les Mis, La La Land, Into the Heights, Dream Girls, Jersey Boys, all very, very good, um, but just didn't quite make my top 10 for the reasons which I will explain. And then we have a few that... I decided not to add to the list, even though I think I might have, but they weren't technically movies like um, Dr. Horrible's Sing Along Blog or Hear Me Out, High School, high school Musical, which uh, really changed the landscape for a while of movie musicals. It brought them back to an extent in a very big way. Is it great? Yes. Yes, it is. It is great. I'm going to just go out there and say it's great. Um, but it, they weren't movies. They were made for TV or made for the internet. So I'm not, they weren't considered either. So I did, after some struggle, come up with 10 movies that I think deserve to be on the list. And we'll just, we'll dive right in because these lists get kind of long. So number 10 goes to Chicago, 2002's Chicago. It's 1920 Chicago, a time of prohibition and vaudeville and apparently when a lot of women start to shoot men including Roxy Hart who got a little upset after her boyfriend tells her he doesn't actually have showbiz connections like he said he did and he just wanted to sleep with her so Roxy shoots him and then tries to convince her husband yes her husband to take the fall claiming it was a break and gone wrong but when the detectives are there kind of trying to get the story out of him he finds out that it was actually an affair that Roxy was having and he turns on her. So Roxy is headed off to jail. That's where she meets Velma Kelly, who's a star who killed her own husband and sister after she caught them together. And she also meets the corrupt Mama Morton, who kind of supervises what's known as Murderous's Row. So Mama ends up telling Roxy about Billy Flynn, this high-profile lawyer who likes to make everything a spectacle, which he does. He makes the city and the media believe that Roxy is a virtuous homemaker that just made a bad choice. And when she tried to leave her boyfriend and go back to her husband, he attacked her and she was just defending herself. Um, 
And then Velma, who had been working with Billy, gets kind of jealous that he's dropped her case and he's focusing on Roxy instead. So she, at the end of the movie, tries to sabotage the court proceedings by bringing in Roxy's diary, which completely incriminates her. But then Billy Flynn, showing off his own razzle-dazzle, spins the story and gets Roxy acquitted, and incidentally Velma as well, stating that the prosecution paid her to read the doctored diary. So that is that is Chicago in a nutshell. And life after jail doesn't quite go as Roxy and Velma had hoped. Um, and they end up partnering up to do this really big show that gets them lots of attention, even though it basically tells everybody they got off for murder. So this one slid into the last spot for one reason and one reason only. Uh, and that would be Richard Gere as Billy Flynn. He's he's cocky and confident. He's smart and dramatic. He's conniving and charming. And he tap dances. He tap dances. I could take or leave Catherine Zeta-Jones and Renee Zellweger, but Richard Gere and the oh-so-sweet John C. Riley as Roxy's husband, Amos, this, just made this a winner and needed to be on the list. Best song... I went with, uh, we both reached for the gun. It's a great scene where Roxy is at a press conference of sorts and she's telling the press what happened between her and her boyfriend and Flynn is trying to keep her on script. And so then it goes between the actual press conference and then him controlling her like a, a ventriloquist puppet. It, I will say, Renee Zellweger did an amazing job in that particular scene, really acting like a puppet, like a dummy. Take that how you will. So that was number 10. Number nine. Number nine is going to go... This one has a lot of moving parts. But this one's going to go to Into the Woods, which came out in 2014. So this is a little difficult to summarize in just a paragraph. But basically, there are four storylines. One, we have a baker and his wife trying to break a curse so that they can have a baby, which sends them off into the woods to collect some items to give to the witch who cursed them to begin with. So that's storyline number one. Number two, we have Red Riding Hood, who is trying to get to her grandmother's house with some baked goods. She encounters the wolf, learns a lot in that experience. That's number two. Number three, we have Jack, who is a young boy who has a special relationship with his cow, uh, which he has to sell so his family can eat. But instead, he trades it to the baker for some magic beans. And then plot number four, we have Cinderella, who goes to the ball and leaves the prince besotted and then spends most of the movie hiding from him, which sounds a lot like prom for me. I like this boy. I invited him to prom, and then I promptly spent the entire evening hiding from him. So it goes. So back to the movie. (laughs) Then Jack goes and uses the magic beans. Well, his mother tosses them onto the ground. Big beanstalks grow up into the sky. He climbs up there and steals some gold from the giants, and they get V upset, right? And then they climb down the beanstalk and start to destroy the countryside. It's basically a fairy tale lover's dream with a singing Chris Pine, a wicked Meryl Streep, an adorable Jack, and some very, very catchy music. I love how both how both complicated and uncomplicated this one is with 
a lot of storylines that weave in and around each other in a very creative way. And it's uncomplicated, even though there's so much going on, because you're familiar with just about all of the storylines, from Rapunzel to Cinderella to Red Riding Hood, the Jack and the Beanstalk. It doesn't take a lot to follow because you're already familiar with the stories. And there's a narrator for, for a good part of the movie, which I always kind of like. And you have a singing Chris Pine. Oh, I'd love to see this one on the stage one day. I don't think all of them I would want to. I mean, I would. If someone was like, hey, Emily, do you want to go to the theater? I'd be like, yes, I'll go to the theater and watch whatever you want me to watch. But this is one that's kind of at the top of I would love to see this live. So best song... I really like I Know Things Now, sung by Red Riding Hood after uh, the baker has saved her from the wolf. She's been swallowed by the wolf. He cuts the, her out of the wolf with her granny. Um, but did I mention that Chris Pine sings? I mean, totally going to give this one to Chris Pine and the overly dramatic agony. He is talking with Rapunzel's prince about how... How is it happening that these two, we are two studly, charming princes who are wealthy and have everything going for us, and yet we can't get the women that we want, and they get very dramatic, and it's lovely. So that's that's my favorite song, and that's why it deserves to be on the list. Number eight. This one was on the list, and then I took it off the list, and then I put it back on, and then I considered it taking it off again, and then I thought, you know what, Emily? Just do a rewatch. You need to do a rewatch, have it fresh in your brain and see if it deserves to be on there. And it does. So it's taking the eighth spot. Not only did it make the list, but it, it made it to the eighth spot. And that would be 2007's Enchanted. So the evil queen of the animated Andalasian, her name's Nerissa, wants to protect her throne. So before her kind of, uh, what would we call him, daft-headed... <laughs> not so bright, um, Prince Charming of a son, Edward, can marry the true his true love of a day. He meets Giselle. They fall in love. Um, Nerissa has to stop this from happening because if he does marry his true love, then he gets the throne. So she sends Giselle to live action New York City where Giselle befriends Robert, who's a divorce, divorce lawyer who kind of doesn't believe in love, and his daughter Morgan, who is as cute as a button. And they find her, they find Giselle just kind of wandering around in her princess wedding dress, talking to billboards. Uh, why you would take in someone like that, I don't know. But I guess, I mean, that makes you a pretty good person. Like, oh, no, this seems safe. Seems like a good life choice. Turns out she is a bit of a loon. She does a lot of singing, has zero concept of real relationships, invites a whole lot of nature into their house, a whole lot of animals, and is genuinely thoughtful and fun, though. So, of course, they fall in love with her. Meanwhile, Edward makes his way to New York City. He's looking for Giselle, and then Nerissa shows up thinking she needs to break them up again. But turns out Giselle has fallen in love with Robert and Morgan in return. Then there's a dragon and a fight, and then everyone lives happily ever after, as you would expect from this kind of story. So why did I eventually not only put this on the list, but put it in the eighth position? And it's making it sound like the eighth position is something very special. And, you know, maybe it is. That's okay. Let's just say number eight is just really special. It's on the list because it calls attention to all of the things that I ranted about in the first season of the podcast with Disney princess movies and magic. 
animals that can clean houses, falling in love after less than one conversation, turning the damsel in distress trope on his head. Amy Adams and James Marsden play airheads to such perfection that you simultaneously want to befriend them and then shove them off a cliff. And then John McLaughlin shows up and he's singing a song and there's a talking chipmunk that does a lot of charades. It really just deserved deserved to be on this list and in that spot. Best song. I'm giving it, it is the best song in the movie. We can argue about it if you want, but you would be wrong if it was any other song than this. It's going to go to That's How You Know. It's the big production in Central Park where Giselle is trying to make Robert understand that love can happen quickly. Um, True love exists. Love at first sight kind of exists. And everybody starts to sing and dance around them in Central Park. And at one point, Robert, played by Patrick Dempsey, is like, how does everybody know this song? And I love that because as much as I want to be a part of a random serendipitous song and dance situation in Central Park in New York City. I too would have that moment of what is going on. I love this. Don't want it to stop. But how does everybody know this song? And it's got a, it's got a peppy beat, almost like a reggae kind of beat. And it's, it's a lot of fun, man. Do they, do they break out? I know mob flash mobs are not a thing anymore. Uh, but if anyone wants to plan one while well, I just happen to be in New York City sometime, that would be fantastic. So that was number eight. Now for number seven. Number seven is going to 2017's The Greatest Showman. So we have P.T. Barnum, a man who grew up poor and at times homeless, who marries his childhood sweetheart, Charity, who came from a very wealthy family. And Charity likes their humble life together with their two little girls, but Barnum wants more. He's always just had, he's been a big dreamer. He sees more for himself. So after he's laid off from his job, he deceives the bank with some fake collateral to get a loan and opens a museum with wax figures. No surprise, business is slow. So he decides to expand his business by adding live exhibits or performers and the likes of unique and odd individuals he meets, including a bearded lady and a dwarf. This family of performers continues to grow until Barnum has a thriving yet kind of controversial show, but that's still not enough. So with his new business partner, Philip Carlyle, who comes from an affluent family. Uh, he's, he's a playwright. He's made a name for himself, but he's, he's a young guy who spends all of his money and does a lot of drinking and partying. He, Barnum sees something in him though, and knows that he potentially has connections. So they partner up and then they go looking for the act that will give them the prestige that Barnum has always wanted. And Barnum finds it in the Swedish Nightingale, a singer that he takes on tour around the U.S. And while they're on tour, Carlisle stays with the circus and falls in love with the trapeze artist played by Zendaya, which totally makes sense. But they're not only facing prejudice because she is black and he is white. They're also facing a real danger as critics of the show start to get pretty loud. 
Meanwhile, the Swedish Nightingale, she falls in love with Barnum. Barnum kind of leads her on, whether he means to or not, and nearly betrays his marriage, uh, which sends him running back home to his family, only to find them mad and the circus literally burning to the ground. So he's, he's lost everything that he built. But then, you know, it's a musical. So there's one rousing song that motivates him to go win back his wife's trust and reorganize his priorities. And they live happily ever after. Best song. Um, I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it to This Is Me. It's an anthem. So after Barnum finds the glory he's been looking for with a Swedish nightingale. He holds kind of a party and his um, performer family wants to come and celebrate with him because they're like, Hey, the, our show is going to be, is going to get some press. This is going to be good for the show. And they're excited for him and they want to celebrate. He turns them away because he doesn't think they would fit in with the crowd um, that has come out for the Swedish Nightingale's performance. And so upset, they sing a song about, you know, this is who we are. We like who we are. Um, and I like that. It's one that's really good when I'm attempting to run on a treadmill. And I don't run well on a treadmill, and it's hard. Um, and that keeps me motivated, which is good. But, you know, then there's also Rewrite the Stars, which is good, between uh, Philip Carlyle and Anna Wheeler. Um you know, Zendaya and Zac Efron singing to one another is never going to be a bad idea. And then there's the rousing song at the end from now on. They're all good. They're all good songs. If you've been on Instagram or TikTok, you know everybody loves the songs and does the dances. So understandably, like why this one's on the list. Now for number six. Uh, so number six goes to 2008's Mamma Mia. Is this the best musical ever? No. Does it have the best voices from actors in the world. Oh, that's a hard pass. No. Um, but let's talk about it. So once upon a time, there was this young woman named Donna who was enjoying her life. She was having a good time. She met three handsome men, spent a couple of wild days and nights with each, and then found herself uh, pregnant in Greece all alone. Fast forward 20 some odd years and the apple of her eye, her daughter Sophie is about to get married. And unbeknownst to Donna, Sophie has invited the three handsome men from her mother's past to the wedding in hopes of figuring out which one is her father. Fiercely independent Donna likes to act like she doesn't need anyone or anything except the beautiful yet a bit of a fixer upper end that she runs in Greece and her two best friends from school who were also once her bandmates because Donna was totally a 1970s girl glam rock band named the Dynamos. <laughs> but when confronted with her past and her terribly stubborn daughter, she learns that maybe it's okay to let people in after all. This is one of my happy movies. You know, the movie you put on when you're kind of in a bad mood and you need to pick me up. Sometimes I'll just put on an ABBA record and that does the trick too, but I love this one so much because it doesn't take itself seriously. Pierce Brosnan cannot sing. I am not trying to imply that he can sing. He definitely cannot. But you can tell that the cast just loved being with each other in Greece, singing ABBA songs, and that's enough for me to get on the list. It's happy, uh, has a fun ending, has some really quirky scenes, dance scenes, and it's great. It's great. Best song is all of them. All of them are the best songs. 
But if I had to pick two, because I can't just pick one, and this is my podcast, I would choose Lay All Your Love on Me. It is my favorite part when at the end, it's Sophie is singing to her fiance on the beach. Uh, she's finally told him what she has done, that she sent these letters out. And he's like, Hey, we talked about this. Or why didn't you tell me, you know, we're starting a family. We should be family enough for one another. And then they kind of start to flirt with each other. But then you look and on this dock are the, the guys in his, what's he call it? A Hindu, (laughs) his bachelor party. And they have, um, flippers on and they're dancing with flippers and then they jump into the ocean and it's like I want to go to that kind of pre-wedding party Uh, but then I'm also going to give it to take a chance on me at the very end um oh just I love it I love it two two older people singing to one another about second chances and lots of flirting that is both desired and unwanted all at the same time so good So that was number six. Number five. Number five is going to go to 2014's The Last Five Years. And I'm only going to do a super quick synopsis because, spoiler, we're going to take a not-so-deep dive on Friday for the last episode of the podcast. It's the love story of Jamie and Kathy over five years in New York City. It's a love story that doesn't really end well. Just spoiler alert there. Kathy is an aspiring actress but is overwhelmed with kind of the constant hustle and disappointment of auditions. Jamie is a writer who has just signed his first book deal and his career is taking off. What's cool about this movie is that it is told in reverse timelines from end to beginning for Kathy and beginning to end for Jamie. So you get to see the whole spectrum of their relationship from both perspectives, which is just very clever and cool. This one will break your heart. It breaks my heart every single time I watch it. And I'll talk about it more on Friday, of course. But between the songs and Jeremy Jordan, who is an American treasure, this one definitely deserves a place on the list. Best song is going to go to a summer in Ohio. It's kind of almost at the middle when they were, they're both kind of in the same place relationship wise. And Kathy goes off to Ohio every summer to um, kind of like summer stages where she can do productions and get um, experience on her belt. So when she goes back to auditions in New York City, she can share with them what she has done and what, what stages she's been a part of. Um, and so she is FaceTiming and Skyping and singing to Jamie, who is waiting anxiously for her to get back home um, to New York City. They both seem happy. It's what, it's about one of the only songs in the whole show where they both seem happy. So that's why it's my favorite. So that We'll talk more about that one. I'm excited to talk more about that one on Friday. Number four. Number four is going to go to 2004's Phantom of the Opera. We have a man, a living ghost, a phantom, if you will. He haunts a Parisian theater and falls in love with a young ingenue named Christine that he teaches from the shadows. That's not creepy at all. And then Christine, who's kind of part of the chorus, ends up the star when the former star, Carlotta, refuses to perform after being tormented by the ghost for years, the phantom for years. The new leadership of the theater, along with their partner, Raul, who just happens to be Christine's childhood sweetheart, they refuse to acknowledge that anything weird is going on. Um, That 
is until Christine winds up missing her angel of music, as she calls him, a masked phantom with a flair for the dramatic, kind of steals her away to the catacombs where he lives. So when Christine, down in the catacombs, removes his mask, curious about what he's hiding, he gets mad, but not too mad, and then he returns her to the theater, but forces the theater guys to make her a lead, and they decide to put their foot down. No, we're not going to do that. And they give it to Carlotta instead, which ticks off the phantom who switches out her throat spray, Carlotta's throat spray, destroying her voice. And then they, he kills a guy. <laughs> it just, it spirals very quickly. Um, Raul and Christine, they kind of run for their lives. Christine knows that he's upset. They escape to the roof of the theater where they sing a love song to one another. But the eavesdropping phantom is now heartbreaking and attempts to brainwash Christine back to him, which upsets Raul. Raul comes up with a plan to capture the Phantom during the performance. Um, It backfires with the Phantom kidnapping Christine again. After she unmasks him in front of an entire audience, he then sends a chandelier crashing into the crowd, setting the theater on fire as they head back into the catacombs. And then Raul chases them down into the catacombs where they fight, the Phantom says he'll keep Raul alive if Christine marries him. Ick, she kisses him, changes his heart, he lets them go, and they live happily ever after until Christine dies at a very old age. That was that was a lot, and I left out a lot too. Not my most concise uh, summary, but that's okay. So I went to see this one five times in the theater with my mother. We really liked it. It was flashy and operatic. Gerard Butler much like Pierce Brosnan, was questionable in talent, but perfect in the creep factor as the Phantom. Minnie Driver steals every every single scene she's in. The theater was intimidating and atmospheric. The music, oh, the music. You love it. I love it. How can you not love it? The best song is absolutely Masquerade. Paper Faces on Parade. Masquerade. They're celebrating the new year in the most... Sterile's not the right word. It's not the most sterile way. It's it's a party where nobody's actually partying. They're just watching other people party. Does that make sense? It has to make sense. It's a great scene, though. Love that song. So that is my number four, The Phantom of the Opera. I have seen that one on stage. It was fantastic. What they can do in theaters across the country, making the chandelier crash into the stage. Oh, so good. Love it. Number three. Number three is going to go to 2007's Hairspray. Sometimes you got to just dance, especially if you're Tracy Turnblatt. She's enamored by the Corny Collins show, a local teen dance show in 1960s Baltimore, and is desperate to try out and be one of the stars, especially if that means dancing with her crush, Link Lurkin, and I'm just realizing Zac Efron made this list twice. He almost made it three times because I really did want High School Musical to be on here. But while her weight doesn't keep her from performing some sweet moves, it doesn't quite fit the ideal that Velma Von Tussel, manager of the TV station, thinks is appropriate for being on air. And while Tracy is facing prejudice because of her appearance, she's also learning about the prejudice within her own city toward African Americans. The TV station only allows black teens to dance on the show once a week when it's hosted by Motormouth Maybell. Uh, Here's another one. Queen Latifah made the list twice, too. She also played um, Mama in Mama Morton in Chicago. So, but she's, of course, the black host of the show, so they allow black teens to dance once a week. 
But then Tracy meets Maybelle's son, Seaweed, in school detention, and he teaches her some, we'll call them provocative, modern moves, which she uses to catch the attention of Corny Collins and Link at an audition for the show, getting her into the cast. She quickly becomes a fan favorite and is in a tight race with Velma's daughter, Amber, for Miss Teenage Hairspray. So then Seaweed invites Tracy, her best friend Penny, and Link to a party on his side of town where they find out that Maybelle's dance day has been canceled. So Tracy suggests they march for integration, but Link is hesitant because he doesn't want to hurt his career aspirations. But Tracy is determined to stand up for her ideals, so she helps Maybelle plan the protest and attends and whole time Maybelle's like, keep it cool, keep it cool. But Tracy gets upset when a police officer tries to stop them and she taps them on the head with a sign. They claim it's, you know, abuse. Uh, and she becomes a wanted criminal. So this fun scene of them singing a song and her being chased by the police and trying to hide. Um, and then Velma decides to ban her from the station the day of the Miss Teenage Hairspray pageant. So she's got her excuse to keep Tracy away uh, so that Amber can win but uh, Tracy sneaks in anyway because she's got some great parents and she's determined not to let Velma's discouragement cool her passion. Link finally stands up for her and then they invite Maybelle's daughter Inez to dance and when a last minute surge of support for Inez in the pageant helps her win the award, the Corny Collins show is officially integrated. It's very sweet. Full disclosure, I haven't liked any other versions of this particular movie. It was Nikki Blonsky as Tracy that just sold it for me. She's cute and talented. She she ex excuse, excuse, exudes compassion and confidence, which I think you really need in Tracy. Uh, you need a young woman that you can believe has both confidence in herself and integrity in her decision-making. She's kind and thoughtful with those she cares about and believes the world can be a better place. And it doesn't hurt that the music is catchy. It's, it's an uplifting story about, you know, people doing the right thing. The best song, even though I do like them all, I'm giving to I Can Hear the Bells. So she's got this major crush on Link Larkin. And she, she just walks down the hallway of school just singing and with her friend Penny right there. It's great. She gets very dramatic. If you can't tell, I like really dramatic, goofy moments. They're my fave. So that was number three. Two more, guys. Two more. Number two is going to go to 2007's Across the Universe. So we have Jude, a shipyard worker from Liverpool, who heads to America to try to find his GI father that he's never met. He finds him at Princeton University, where he works as a janitor. And Jude is staying in the maintenance closet at the school for a few days since his dad has another wife and kids that doesn't, and he doesn't want to ruin things by springing a new scent on them and that's where june meets max who invites him to his house for thanksgiving introducing him to lucy his sister who's worried about her high school boyfriend who enlisted and was sent to vietnam so max gets into a fight with his dad school just isn't his thing so he and jude decide to see if they can make things work in new york city if they can make a life for themselves in new york city they start living with a musician named Sadie, and while they're not exactly thriving, they're loving life. Jude loves it even more when Lucy comes to visit after she finds out her boyfriend has been killed in the war. That seems kind of weird to immediately start hitting on a girl who just lost her boyfriend. But we're going to look past that. Lucy decides to stay. 
The two fall in love. Max gets drafted, and the war turns all of their lives upside down. Eventually, Jude, who has been living in the States on an expired visa, gets sent back to England, and Lucy and Max are lost without him. He eventually finds his way back as they sing Hey Jude to him. And I like to believe that everyone lives as happily ever after as they can in 1960s New York City. <laughs> if you're not familiar with this one, the soundtrack is Beatles' song sung by the cast planned beautifully to track the plot it offers character development a lot of times and you really get a picture painted of the decade i just love the way they fit all of the songs together from all over the beatles catalog and it's kind of cool going into a musical fresh but immediately being able to see every word being able to sing every word to every song i like that just a lot like into the woods when you're familiar with things going in Sometimes it's just a little more fun. Same with Mamma Mia, too. If you don't know all the ABBA songs, I don't know what you're listening to. But Best song, and it's hard when it's the Beatles songs. <laughs> it's probably going to be... You know what? I think I'm going to give it to Let It Be. Uh, juxtapositioning the violence against the black community with the violence of the Vietnam War. But then you've got... Somehow they got Joe Cocker to sing Come Together as JoJo. Um, this young black musician kind of comes into the city and enters Sadie's circle. And I, I think it might have been, actually, I don't know how I missed this in all my years of listening to my father play the Beatles. I've just seen a face. There's this really cool scene in a bowling alley where they're sliding down the lanes and jumping up and down. And at least they didn't. You remember when I talked about Grease 2? how they did a scene in a bowling alley and they were just flinging the bowling balls around like they weighed nothing. They didn't do that. So that makes this one better. So yeah, love it. Love across the universe. That's number two. And number one, finally to number one. Have you guessed it yet? Can you guess it? I don't know if you can guess it. What's your number one? Do you want me to, I'll, let me, let me, let me tell you my number one first. So number one is going to go to 2001's Moulin Rouge. Oh, so sweet. Christian is a bohemian. He's an aspiring poet that has made his way to Paris and he quickly meets Toulouse-Lautrec and a quirky troupe of performers who are creating a play called Spectacular Spectacular. When the play is complete, they head to the Moulin Rouge, hoping Christian can talk the star of the Gentleman's Club, the beautiful courtesan, Satine, into convincing the owner, Harold Ziegler, to put on the play. That same night, though, Ziegler has arranged for his favorite courtesan, Satine, to seduce a duke in hopes of turning the Moulin Rouge into a theater. In a madcap crazy scene where Satine thinks Christian is the duke, the duke shows up, Toulouse and Troop crash the party, and everyone starts to sing. It's determined that the Duke will finance the show as long as Satine sleeps with him. But, of course, she falls in love with Christian, which leads to secret rendezvous, a very angry and frustrated Duke, a hot mess of a musical, and a dead courtesan in the end because tuberculosis is a big bummer. Spoiler alert. I wish I could remember if I saw this one in the theater or not. I just, I know it was the album I had to have. I memorized every word to every song, fell madly in love with Ewan McGregor, and grew to really appreciate the insane, sometimes manic storytelling of director Boz Lerman. I then immediately found Strictly Ballroom, uh, a quirky little movie about Australian ballroom dancers. I, if you haven't seen it, it's strange and weird, and it's worth a viewing, believe me. Um, but it's... 
The movie is just entertaining. The fact that it's also romantic and charming doesn't hurt either. I'm a girl who loves whimsy, and this movie is full of it. And I was able to go to New York City right before COVID, not right before, but the fall before COVID started to see it on stage. And it was just as whimsical in New York City on Broadway as well. Aaron Tveit played Christian. It was wonderful. The whole theater was bright red and it, they really made you feel like you were sitting in the Moulin Rouge. And another quick story about the Moulin Rouge. Uh, Back in college, I was able to go to London and Paris on a trip with the art department. We had something called spring term at the University of Indianapolis where you had to earn, you had to do, I think, two spring term classes um, to earn extra credits. And that's when a lot of people traveled. They were kind of fun classes too. Like, um, you I think there was one about watching Disney movies or the Civil War in movies. And so it, this was not stressful stuff. But I got to go to Europe. And I was with my best friend. And we had some time alone where we could just kind of wander around Paris. And we're like, we want to see the Moulin Rouge. So we navigate the metro. We sat with this woman who was mentally disturbed and kept doing the cut your throat gesture at us. And so we didn't quite know how to take that if our lives were in danger. And then we realized that, did we want to be on this side of town as the Moulin Rouge? We didn't know. So we ended up running up the stairs, literally taking a picture, running back down the stairs, hopping right back on the metro. <laughs> we were not the savviest of travelers, the most confident of European travelers at that time. We did later go back with the group um, where the art professor who was leading the group, his wife was with us. She then led us into all of the sex shops because she thought that would be funny. Um, it was a good time. So we got some better pictures of the Moulin Rouge. And I, but I love having both of those stories together. The fact that we went and saw it for two seconds on our own, but then went back and experienced it in a different way with the group. It was fantastic. So Moulin Rouge holds a special place in my heart. Best song is going to go to El Tango de Roxanne, where they sing Sting, of course. They sing Roxanne um, as the, the troupe is waiting to see if Satine is going to save the show and sleep with the Duke or not. But then Christian is having his heart ripped out of his body because he does not want Satine to sleep with the Duke. It's, it's, um, kind of a harsh reality of, you know, this, these women are doing what they do to keep themselves alive. Uh, not that it's, I mean, it's honest work for them. Um, so it's that hard struggle between desire and love and oh such a good moment such a good moment she doesn't go with it through with it spoiler <laughs> lots of spoilers all the spoilers I do want you to watch all of these and I would love to hear what your top 10 are from the 2000s but that is it for today thank you so much for listening really it is so appreciated. Thank you for going on this journey with me. Thank you for listening to me talk about nothing in particular. If you haven't already, I hope you subscribe so we can keep going on this journey together. And if you've got the time, it would be awesome if you could rate and review so that other individuals who like just random conversations about pop culture and life and silly stories about a girl who, you know, just has fun doing what she does, they can join the fun as well. Or if you want to share the podcast, that would be very awesome too. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at, at GnomeGirlM and on Facebook is a bit of fun with Emily. 
Go have yourself a bit of fun today and join me on Friday for our final episode of season three. I'll see you next time.